Lord, thank you for this feast that you've prepared for us in John 11. Thank you for brothers and sisters and friends to share it with. Thank you for the discussion that we have already had. And we pray that uh, our continued time together sitting before your word would not be without eternal fruit. We pray that you would, by your spirit, open our ears, open our eyes, that we might hear from you, Lord Jesus, that we might see you more clearly. And we ask that you would soften our hearts, that we would love you, and that you would give us wisdom so that you would help us know how seeing you more clearly, hearing more about who you are and your purposes in the world, ought to shape our lives and uh, by the power of your spirit. So we pray, Lord, that you would guide us now. We pray also, Father, to pray for me that the words that I say would be the ones that you want me to say and that all of this, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be honorable and acceptable and uh, glorifying to the Lord Jesus, your son. We pray in his name, amen. Um. Okay, so this is kind of tough. John 11, or yeah, John 11, right? Um, Death is shocking. So this is not a fun intro, folks. Um, It is cruel. I remember where I was when it really sank in uh, when I realized that my friend Jenny would not beat leukemia a second time. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna cry, and I knew I was going to, but it's sort of the point, right? Because death is so terrible. Um, I met Jenny here at this class, and um, she was a, just a delight and lo- loved God and served him in many ways, and I saw her. Uh, she was diagnosed with leukemia over a summer, and uh, I saw her fight we saw her together. We prayed for her as a class, uh, fight cancer valiantly the first time around. And she went into remission and we celebrated and we thanked the Lord for his kindness in healing her and extending her life. Um, but the next year, I think it was the next year, uh, the cancer came back fiercely. Um, and Jenny fought again and we prayed and the doctors worked. Uh, she got a bone marrow transplant and I think actually two of them and her body rejected both. And um, I remember going to, I remember where I was when I realized she might not recover. I would, had been working out and I was gonna go take a shower. I remember the song that was in my head. I remember It was like the wind had just been knocked out of me because she had so much life in her and just uh, such a great friend and sister in Christ. And um, I went to go visit her in the hospital. I think the last time that I saw her in the hospital and she couldn't speak because of, you know, just everything. And uh, I think she was on a tube, but she was conscious and her mom and her aunt were there. And I came in and um, I, I regret this. She looked at me. I mean, because like we studied God's word. We like sought him together. We laughed, we cried together. Um, 
And she looked at me with eyes that were just big. And I could see like she had big questions. She was afraid. Like she knew this was gonna probably be the end. And um, her mom and her aunt were there. And so I just acted chipper and I, you know, I, I, I didn't answer the question that the unspoken question that she asked. And I regret that. Um, and that was the last time I saw her, but it won't be the last time that I see her. Anyway, sorry. And I know that God ministered to her. I trust that in a way that I, I failed to, but, but he, he preserved her. Um, Anyway, sorry. Death is cruel. Have you seen it? Have you felt it? It's all around. I mean, how many times have we watched people die in movies and TV shows? Probably a lot. Write about it in books. Um, but when you see it, it is terrible. Um, I, I do not agree with those who argue that it is a natural part of life. It is a thief. Those who are made in the image of God, that we would be, that that image would be corrupted and die is not something that you and I, I suggest to you, were ever created to be able to handle well, be able to deal with. Um, and death, so death is cruel. Uh, I, f- I think I felt it more because Jenny was 30. Um, but I suggest to you, even if she'd been 90, and maybe grandparents of yours have died, maybe you have had a friend who's died, or um, that uh, her family and friends, Jenny and like her family and friends, or maybe you for the, those whom you love who have died, you would do whatever you could to, to prevent that, right? Um, and Mary and Martha, the two sisters that we read about in our in our um, in our narrative, our trustworthy narrative uh, tonight in John 11, um, when their brother was sick, and we don't have any in, this, in the beautiful and sparse way of biblical narrative, we don't have the whole backstory. I presume that uh, they try to maybe do other things too, you know, help them feel better and give them some herbs or, what, you know, we don't have that information. I'm just speculating. But we do know that there came a point when it must have been bad. And uh, they sent word to Jesus. And we can hear the plea for help. Lord, the one you love is sick. And they leaned into that relationship. They didn't even say his name. It's not recorded for us anyway, right? They just assumed that he would know. And that was part of it in that unstated, please come, please help, please intervene. We don't want our brother to die. Uh, and so we have seen, uh, if you've been here with us as we've been studying the book of John, open your Bibles, by the way, John 11, um, we're, we've seen the gospel of John regularly exposed to us human problems. We started out, uh, one of the early ones was a lack of wine, um, just an ordinary problem, but we've seen sickness and lameness and blindness. Um, and these physical problems are real and they've been felt acutely. Even though they're common, ordinary problems doesn't mean they aren't real and doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about them, right? He intervenes. Uh, but we've seen two things 
I suggest to you at least two things as Jesus has worked, um, stepped into these problems. Uh, we've seen that uh, physical problems in the gospel of John have a corresponding spiritual problem, right? That there's, there's physical sickness, there's spiritual sickness, there's physical blindness, there's spiritual blindness, there's physical death. But friends, especially John 11, pushes us toward to recognize there is spiritual death. Uh, and uh, these, these other bigger corresponding spiritual problems, we're not usually, if you're like me and it, people in the Gospel of John, we aren't aware of these as much as we are of our other problems, the ones that we can see, see and fear and feel, right? We don't feel them acutely. The man uh, that we saw, I think it was John 5, who was physically paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda, um, he did not say, Jesus, what I really need healing from is my spiritual lameness and sickness. Um, we didn't see the man born blind, uh, you know, talk to Jesus about his spiritual blindness, though we saw Jesus uh, correct that. Um, Mary and Martha even, and, and I, I I, I think the narrative holds them up for us to, uh, like, to admire. Uh, even they who believed, not perfectly, but believed, did not urgently, urgently summon Jesus with the spiritual death of a loved one in view. Someone who was spiritually dead. Jesus, would you, the one you love is, is sick. Would you please come? Uh, so I suggest to you the Gospel of John has been painting this picture for us that this physical reality, there are real and even bigger, more dire problems in a spiritual reality for us. And uh, one of those that we've seen from the very beginning is that we don't know about enough about God. We don't trust. It's not just that we don't know enough about him. Even when we know about him, we don't trust him and as he's the source, the only source of light and life, by not knowing about him, by not trusting him, by not loving him, we are spiritually dead and in darkness. And there is nothing that we can do about it. We are without hope apart from his intervention. But we do, and so there's our plight uh, that Jesus has been unfolding for us. I suggest to you in the Gospel of John, he wants us really to see these problems that not just the people in the book have, but also we as readers have uh, spiritual problems too. And that we've also seen the second thing, that Jesus works in these real problems. And as he does that, he shows himself. That's what he wants us to see. That the gospel of John wants us to see the Lord Jesus and have him on display. That has been, that's John's overall aim. If you look at, uh, we've done this a number of times, but just do it again, uh, just to keep it in our head. Like John's, John has a bias. This is not a neutral account of just things that uh, Jesus did in his life. He wants us to uh, read these and respond a certain way. So uh, chapter 20, verse 31 uh, or I'll just do 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's basically really push, sets us up for what we're, what we're doing in our passage. Where we're going is that this is this, what's at stake is life and death. 
That is ultimately what's at stake. And uh, even though we don't see it, God sees the bigger picture. And as king and creator from the very beginning, as the Bible records it, he has been working his plan of redemption to redeem a people for himself, to redeem this world for himself so that sin does not exist anymore. Rebellion is not a factor. Death is gone. That's where history is going. Um, He loves the world, even our hot mess. And God's answer to life's problems is Jesus himself. God's answer to life's problems, your problems and mine, the problems that we, our ordinary problems and we think, (laughs) uh, and our spiritual problems. And we don't, I suggest to you probably if you're like me, we don't expect an answer like that. Uh, But I suggest in the long view, from God's perspective, this is the very best answer that we possibly could have hoped for. And so we're going to see that tonight. Uh, Jesus meet death, our universal human problem head on. He raises Lazarus from the dead. That's a physical reality, but that is with a spiritual, rea- spiritual goal in mind that we might see and believe that he truly is God's son sent to rescue us from spiritual death now, but ultimately when his kingdom is fully come, when he is returned, there will also, he will rescue us also from physical death too. So it's the both and, and there won't be any more the separation that we feel between the physical and the spiritual. Um, okay. So, uh, a name I think, oh gosh, our time is just going away so quickly. All right. So, um, here's a, a lesson I think that we can learn, uh, because Jesus defeats death, one of our greatest foes, uh, we should trust him with everything. It's a, it's a greater to lesser argument because he's so great and he intervenes and he cares so much about death. How much more can we trust him with the smaller things in our life? The things that are, um, maybe we don't think they're as important, but we can see Jesus is the kind of savior that sees our problems as a backdrop, as he is a savior in his person and he can't stop rescuing and saving. That's who he is. Um, as Daniel seven talks about, um, Jesus will never abandon those who trust in him. So that's what I, that's my aim for tonight. Uh, Jesus will never abandon those who trust in him. We're going to look at, uh, two quick divisions. Oh my goodness. Um, so the first one, the long one, uh, verses one to 44, Jesus raises beloved Lazarus to life. And then we'll see, hopefully we'll have time for this, 45 to 57, people have a divided response to Jesus. We've been seeing that, that rising division as we've, and it's going to come to a culmination conflict at the end of chapter 12. So we're almost there, folks. Like the focus has not been on rising belief, though that has been mentioned, but rather the accelerating, intensifying, murderous unbelief um, as opposition thinks that by killing Jesus that they can silence him. And so we'll, we're going to see if that's going to work for them. Okay. Uh, spoiler alert, no. But okay. <laughs> okay. Let's get into our first division. Um, Jesus loves Lazarus and he brings life to him and through him. Um, Okay, so there are three parts to this division. Uh, Verses one through 17, we see Lazarus is alive but sick. And then verses 18 through 37, 
when Lazarus is dead. And then 38 to 44, when Lazarus is both, right? Jesus calls him out of the tomb. So he starts out dead and he ends up alive. So just tracking it with, with Lazarus, who is, even though we don't hear any words from him, he is in prominent view the whole time, right? Uh, so uh, we have in this first section, 1 to 17, we Jesus at, with his disciples at some distance from the family whom he loves. He's probably at uh, the end of chapter 10, verse 40, suggest, I, I, I point this to, I think, Bethany beyond the Jordan, uh, which if you look at J- John 1, 8, 28, is the confirm, you know, is one link to that, which scholars think maybe is, is that way, just a few miles east of the Jordan on the Transjordan side. Uh, and then he's going to where this family lives, another Bethany. So it's Bethany to Bethany, maybe, <laughs> Think about that. Bethany, which is uh, very close by Jerusalem. And so he's, uh, he's away, he's at a distance, and there's this family, two sisters, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. Uh, we hear that three times in verse two, verse three, and verse six. So this is the situation. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, uh, what I mentioned before, verse three, Lord, the one you love is sick. And uh, we're told um, we have a tension there. So it's really underscored. Jesus loves Lazarus. And yet Jesus delays coming to the family. He stays away while they're in this plight. He purposely stays away and he has specific reasons for that. We're told five things that Jesus says, which display he knows what he's going to do and why. So this is just not a, well, maybe I should go, maybe I shouldn't. No, he's, he knows what he's going to do from the very beginning, uh, just like as we saw before the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. This is a characteristic of Jesus, friends. Jesus knows what he's going to do. So we have in verse uh, four, verse seven, verse nine through 10. I think that's in there. It's mysterious. Verse 11 and 14 through 15. And so he seems to wait until the very worst, the most terrible thing that the sisters probably thought that could happen actually happens. That Lazarus dies and then is buried. And uh, this pushes into that shocking tension uh, that Lazarus dies. And even look at... Um, Verse 14, um, again, Jesus loves Lazarus, but look at that shocking wording. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so um, the result, he's glad, not because Lazarus suffered, but he's glad of what is going to bring, this is gonna bring about that the end is not gonna be death from verse four, And the result is going to be God and his son glorified, verse 4, and that you, the disciples, will believe, Uh, verse 15. You, probably, he's talking to his disciples, right? Um, Maybe we are included also in that, even though this is not, he didn't speak that to us, but it's preserved for us. We're invited to witness what Jesus does and then believe. Okay, second section then of this, so that's when Lazarus is still alive, up to the point when he dies. Okay, so 18 to 34, or sorry, 37, Jesus and his disciples approach the family. And so we have these two sections, actually three. 
where uh, there, he's coming and he's not yet in Bethany or he's not at the house and Martha hears about it and goes out and meets him. Then we have a scene with Martha, or sorry, Mary. And then we have a scene with Jesus mourning uh, at, at the tomb. And uh, so both sisters initiate the conversation with the same exact sentence. Did you see that? You probably noticed that one, 21 to 37. Uh, it encourages us as readers, not only are there sisters and their names are interchanged, certainly in that first section, which one is first. Uh, we're encouraged to compare them. Um, and they both start from a point of grief and disappointment. It seems uh, mingled with faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which it seems, by the way, Jesus does agree with this in verse 15 because he said, I'm glad I was not there. So he, he does seem that he would agree with them, not that they probably heard that, though they might have got, I didn't know. Uh, what do you think? In verse four, did Jesus send that message back to them? Or did he not send any message at all? This sickness will not end in depth. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Is this the first word they're hearing from Jesus or not? I don't know. Could be, right? And they go out and they're, uh, so it could be that they, it was even quiet on their end. They didn't even know what was gonna be about, uh, that the sickness was not gonna end in death. And so grief in and disappointment. So take this as an encouragement, friends. I hope I do too. Grief and disappointment does not negate faith in Jesus. Martha expresses her faith with words, her grief and disappointment in verses 22, 24, 27. Uh, Mary's faith is mostly in bodily expression. She has her one sentence but then she falls at Jesus' feet, verse 32, which by the way, seems to characterize Mary. We've anticipated that in verse two, that she's the one who anoints him with uh, perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. We're gonna get to that in chapter 12. So Mary is someone who is often seems to be falling at Jesus' feet and Martha's maybe more verbally expressive. I don't know, Uh, Jesus doesn't have the same way of relating to everybody. Isn't that encouraging too, that he knows us enough to do that? It's compassionate. Um, And so Jesus answers Martha's verbal expression of faith with further revelation of himself. So he pinnacles in verse 25 and 26, when Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord. Uh, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who was to come in the world. I wonder, um, it does seem tied. uh, What he says there in verse 25 and 26, as he's talking to her, it seems that he also implies by that, look what he says in verse 40 to her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So it seems that there's a correlation between living and seeing the glory of God. Maybe in a, with, when it's with faith. Uh, when, I mean, because some people, the scriptures tell us, we'll see the glory of God at the end of all things. And they will not be among those who had faith. And that will be a different kind of existence for them. 
Um, okay, so uh, where am I here? So, okay, the I am declaration, that's the, I think the fifth one that we've come to. And again, evoking that, the Old Testament, uh, God's covenant name that he gave to Israel, uh, I am. And so this is a, it's a word play here, but it, it, it invokes the idea that um, the resurrection is not so much a when, though there is a when, it will happen, but it's a who. The resurrection is Jesus. He is so much life in him, indestructible life, that he himself is the resurrection. Uh, and so uh, the question, uh, okay, so uh, to live and see is the glory of God. Okay, uh, glorify God. That is a sort of a Christian-y word. It's a little hard for us to get our head around because God, friends, is glorious in himself. Any interaction that we have with him does not increase his glory in an absolute sense, right? He is majestic and holy. He didn't need us to worship him or glorify him. And yet, there, uh, his glorifying God in this sense seems to mean that God's character will be more put on display for people to see and respond to. And that is cooperating with God's purposes. And so his character is being lifted up and put on display and that is uh, glorifying to him. And so for a God, for a mere human to be glorified, does that feel kind of weird <laughs> to you? Like the son needs to be glorified, that God needs to be glorified. I mean, we think that's kind of weird if some, if just an ordinary human would say, you know, I need to be glorified and lifted up um, but this is not a mere human. Jesus, that's what the gospel of John has been uh, depicting to us. And he, we read that in the aim too. Um, if God is truly the only source of life and life, light, uh, as we were told way back in the prologue, to not see God, to not know his character, leaves us in darkness and death. And Jesus' concern then is that people may see God's glory and respond rightly, respond with faith and trust and thereby through his work on the cross where their sins are atoned for, they can be in intimate fellowship with light and life. There is no lasting life without God's character on display. Okay, um, let's see here. Just looking forward, <laughs> running out of time. Okay, uh, so in this third section, 38 to 44, really I think is the pinnacle probably of the whole passage, uh, the peak tension is likely between 44 and 43 uh, when he had said this, when, meaning that he'd uh, take away the stone, verse 38, kind of uh, opens that up. So we absolutely know now what he's probably, you know, we anticipate what he's doing as readers. Uh, Martha doesn't understand, the other people probably don't understand, um, but so he engages with Martha, uh, which heightens the tension. And he prays again, which heightens the tension. And uh, so, but by the time he had said this, he prays, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So this is a big deal because Lazarus was not, I mean, he was at least four days in the tomb so he was not in the prince's bride sense, mostly dead. 
He was fully dead, completely dead. And as Martha was worried about, smelly, because death stinks. And uh, so when Lazarus comes out, this is the moment that the whole narrative has been driving for toward, and we can see the validation of everything that Jesus has said. He knows what he's doing, and he knows where he's going. The sickness didn't end in death. It didn't end in Lazarus's death. And just imagine, friends, how many people have perhaps come to faith. God has used this account to bring them from spiritual death into spiritual life. That is an amazing thing. And he's going there to wake him up. That's what he did in verse 11. He said that, and your brother wise again in 23. His end goal was not, of course, simply Lazarus uh, living in that, in that way, in that physical way. It was uh, verse four for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it in verse 15 that you, the disciples, may believe. And believe what? Believe the specific realities about Jesus that he just prays about in, uh, in his prayer, 41 and 42, uh, that God hears Jesus and has sent him to do his work. Um, that is what Jesus' person means. We are spiritually dead and physically subject to death, each one of us, and yet God is compassion on us, love and compassion. Uh, as we read about in John three sixteen, he is fundamentally in the business of defeating death and all of death's allies, suffering, pain, and what death means, rebellions against God who is light and life. And his raising of Lazarus is an image of what he does to us spiritually um, as believers. Check your notes for that because I've run out of time to talk about that. So principle I think that we can learn from this division is that Jesus' delay does not mean he can't or he won't. Jesus' delay does not mean he doesn't. He doesn't love you. Jesus' delay does not mean that. Jesus sees the biggest bigger picture and he knows what he will do and why he is working toward a more loving purpose for you and for his father's world. Because, uh, and in God's wise timing, you and I may not like this, but uh, our life's purpose is not ultimately about us. We are not the characters of our, we are not the main characters of our life story uh, the man born blind, Lazarus, they had a purposeful role in a story where they were not the main character. And that does not, it's, that is hard for us friends because, or I don't know, I wrestle with this. Their suffering was real. The man born blind had to be, had to suffer in really real ways for years and years and years and wait for Jesus to heal him. Um, and yet how many has the Lord brought to faith or uh, from spiritual death into life or strengthened the faith of the faithful uh, through their stories? Suffering in God's plan has a purpose. Jesus' delay has a purpose and it's unto life. I thought about today, uh, especially in this day that our nation uh, celebrates and honors pastor and civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., um, he had eyes to see in our country what was going on that many other people did not have eyes to see. Dr. King saw injustice and he was willing to speak and act and lead 
This service was sacrificial. He could have been living some other life, doing other things, and yet he served according to his convictions uh, and served in such a way that many, many have benefited. And it is right for our country to celebrate and honor him. Uh, The night before his life was brutally cut short on April 4th, 1968, he gave uh, a speech where he said this, um, kind of a little prophetically, interestingly enough, uh, we've got some difficult days ahead, this is his his words, uh, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, I looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Dr. King, I hear those words and I understand that Dr. King saw his life and the sacrifices that he made as part of a larger purpose, part of a larger mission. And I don't know that, you know, if we could ask him, uh, would you be willing to be assassinated so that your mission go forward? Like, you know, I don't know how he would have responded to that. Um, uh, But he, uh, he was faithful to that mission to the very end, which, by the way, he saw as fitting into Jesus' mission. And so, friends, um, in, in a way, then, he, we have things to learn from Dr. King um, because I suggest to you that your life and mine in our ordinary lives, our ordinary kinds of suffering, even though it is terrible, can be really terrible, that it is serving a purpose as a part of a larger mission where God is expanding his kingdom. How do you see your life as fitting into Jesus' mission? And what kind of suffering has that entailed for you? How have you responded to suffering? Um, Even suffering that doesn't seem like my friend Jenny's leukemia. How did that fit in the Lord's mission? I don't know. Um, And yet I trust that he used it Um, How do we steward our hearts and minds, however, when we feel Jesus is delayed and we feel isolated and betrayed that our cries to him don't seem to make a tangible difference? Do you cling tenaciously to what he's done for you? Even in those desperate places, how does your life display your devotion to him? That his resurrection life is at work in you. Will you put yourself in a place where his comfort is more readily accessible, where you are listening for his voice and studying his word, uh, meeting with other believers? Do you know people in your life who are suffering and Jesus has delayed? How might he use you to comfort them and encourage them to keep moving forward? Okay, uh, I've run out of time. Um, just in this last section, uh, we see a cooperative response, verse 45. We see adversarial re- response, 46 and 53. And then we see a waiting, uh, anticipation response, 54 to 57. And a principle, I think, that we, um, as this intensive uh, opposition builds up, um, we can see, especially in that area of the prophetic, that God uses the words of an enemy of Jesus, Caiaphas, the high priest, to actually speak the truth of what is going to happen for Jesus as a part of his plan. 
um, that he would die for the Jewish nation, verse, uh, this is pulling from 50, 51 and 52, and not only that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Uh, so a principle I think that we have uh, from this section, a little short section I didn't really talk about, is that Jesus cannot be thwarted. Jesus can't be thwarted. And no matter the efforts to silence the gospel of Jesus Christ, he is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, he is gonna work in such a way that people hear and see and believe him and bring them from life into death. He's gonna be doing that in every generation until he returns. His sacrifice will not be wasted. His work to save and bring life will not be in vain. Opposition to Jesus is inevitable, but Jesus cannot be thwarted. And one of the beautiful things about God is that he will not be silenced. People from the ages have tried to kill so that God wouldn't be able to speak, that he would be silenced. But God uses that even to spread the gospel. And I think, I can't remember which church father said this, but the blood of the martyrs is seed. That God is even in that, how he allows human agency and yet he's sovereign, that he uses even the purposes of evil that are trying to squash his gospel mission, that he will use that actually to further it. Um, And yet, and again, that we need to see that from the broader picture of what in the mission of what God is doing. God is going to make sure that his plan goes forward. And what is his plan? We're going to see that uh, his death and resurrection verse what we I just read is that he is gathering one flock under one shepherd and he intends life from them. Um, he is, Jesus cannot be thwarted. I thought about in this last little section where it's almost time for the Passover, verses 55 uh, through 57, and people are like, what are they asking one another? Uh, end of 56, they kept looking for Jesus and they, uh, they, they asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming? Um, and Jesus, my friends, cannot be thwarted. And you and I, I wonder, are you waiting for Jesus to come back? His word and his purpose cannot be broken. Um, It is probably something by people you know, it would be mocked. Or maybe there are people here. And and that's, I'm glad you're here uh, to think about this and consider it. But there are people in this room who actually believe that Jesus is coming back bodily. That he who was dead was raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he is coming back because he said he would. He will come back to rescue and redeem all those who have been faithful to him and trusted. He will never abandon those who trust him. He is coming back. He has said so. And it seems to be a part of his purpose that as we wait for him, he is waiting actually We're not just waiting. He is waiting for the Father's timing and purpose uh, that we live in the tension of the reality of his word that has been preserved for us in the scriptures and the the work that he's doing by his Holy Spirit in the church, but also the heartbreaking realities of living in a world where death still appears to reign. 
and where people can mock Jesus or plot against him without apparent consequence and even maybe apparent victory, where those of us who do believe, uh, we still have a lot of room to grow in our understanding of who he is and how he means for us to wait for him. Jesus is awaiting God's timing, but Jesus cannot be thwarted. My friend Jenny waits. The, the martyrs under the altar in Revelation, is it Revelation 6, 7? The, well, we're studying Revelation next year, so we'll know. Um, they are waiting. There are thousands upon thousands of those who have died in Christ who have died physically, and they are waiting. They're waiting for Jesus to come back. And friends, that could be you and me too. He could come back in our lifetimes, or he could come back after it. But still we wait. How are we going to wait? Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for your commitment to rescue us from the clasp of sin and death. And we pray, Father, that you would continue your work in us, uh, expand our hearts and our minds, that we might live and respond more faithfully to you, the Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.